0: Hello and welcome to the Clinical Update podcast from MIMS Learning. I'm the editor, Pat Anderson. MIMS Learning aims to educate and inform healthcare professionals through learning modules, webinars and live events featuring doctors and other clinicians who are passionate about their field of expertise. I'm here with Dawn Powell, a medical editor who's responsible for our diabetes specialty, amongst others. Welcome, Dawn. Hello. Just as a reminder, this podcast is aimed at healthcare professionals... As medical editors, we're not clinicians ourselves, but we just pass on key messages from our CPD modules. This is intended to inform your clinical judgment. Later in this episode, we'll have an expert interview with rheumatologist Dr. Tamir Mali, and we'll wrap up at the end with a learning nugget, featuring some sweet research into an important topic. But first... Dawn is going to be talking to Sangeeta Krishnan, another one of our medical editors, about the little-discussed issue of sexual dysfunction in women with diabetes.
1: Yes, thanks, Pat. As you mentioned, sexual dysfunction in women really isn't talked about, so I thought it would be a good topic to talk about in this podcast. I think just because, like, if you hear the word sexual dysfunction, your mind can kind of go to erectile dysfunction in men, but of course, sexual dysfunction can affect women just as it can affect men. And in particular, it can affect women with diabetes. Therefore, I'm going to review a module on sexual dysfunction in women with diabetes by Dr. Kirsty Winkley. She is a diabetes specialist nurse and health psychologist. In the module, she notes that sexual dysfunction may affect between 20 and 40% of pre-menopausal with type 1 diabetes and about 40% of women who are postmenopausal and have type 2 diabetes she notes that the prevalence of sexual dysfunction in women with diabetes may be almost double that of women without diabetes. Um, Sangeeta, you had a look at the module and you had some questions.
2: Yeah, Don, that was a really interesting topic. I was very curious about what we mean by sexual dysfunction in women.
1: Well, basically, sexual dysfunction in women can be put into five categories, which are challenges with sexual desire, challenges with sexual arousal, challenges with achieving orgasm and dyspnea, which is essentially pain in the pelvic area during sexual intercourse or penetration. And then there is vaginismus, which is tightening of the muscles of the vagina, which again affects penetrative sex. I mean, I just want to stress here that we are talking about women who want to have sex, but for whatever reason are struggling to do so. This is not about women who just don't want to have sex.
2: So you mentioned diabetes, what exactly causes sexual dysfunction in this cohort?
1: While hyperglycemia can be associated with reduced blood flow, which can contribute to vaginal dryness, which can make penetrative sex painful. On the flip side, hypoglycemia during sex is common for women with diabetes. So a woman may need to plan sexual activity to avoid having a hyperglycemic attack, which is not directly related to sexual dysfunction. But you can sort of see why that might impact or affect her sex life. The causes can also be psychological and gynecological and it's worth pointing out that they can all be interrelated as well. But really, I would check out the module because it does go into more detail about the causes.
2: I definitely will do. So given this prevalence of sexual dysfunction in women with diabetes, is this something that would normally be discussed in a diabetes clinic?
1: Well, according to Dr. Winkley, no. She observes that women aren't typically asked about their sexual well-being. If they're of childbearing potential or thought to be they might be asked about family planning or pregnancy but if they're not thought to be of childbearing potential so postmenopausal probably with type 2 diabetes they're probably not going to be asked about their well-being at all
2: and why is that well
1: it might be because diabetes specialists so that's diabetologists or diabetes specialist nurse or any healthcare professional who's got interest in diabetes may be unaware that sexual dysfunction can affect women with diabetes or even if they are aware, then the embarrassment factor can kick in. So, I mean, talking about sexual dysfunction can be as awkward for the healthcare professional as it can be for the patient.
2: And how can this topic be raised then?
1: Well, in the module, Dr. Winkley says, clinics have been taking steps to ensure that a woman with diabetes feels comfortable discussing her sexual well-being. For example, providing a leaflet or asking general questions. If a woman does indicate that she wants to discuss sexual dysfunction, the female sexual function index can be used to further understand what the issue is and what's really going on. But essentially, I think the idea is to help patients feel comfortable talking about sexual dysfunction if they want to. And also making it clear if they don't want to talk about it, that's fine as well.
2: And if a clinician came across a patient with sexual dysfunction, how would they go about managing them?
1: that very much depends on the underlying cause and what the exact issue is. I mean, again, the module does go into more detail, but as with anything, I think compassion and understanding are undoubtedly key.
0: Thanks very much, Dawn and Sangeeta, for shedding some light on an area of practice that may not get enough attention. Now we're going to our interview with rheumatologist Dr. Tamir Mali about rheumatoid arthritis. Dr Malley will be speaking at MIMS Learning Live London in June and our interview will get a little bit of a preview of some of the issues he's going to cover. I have with me Dr Tamir Malley who's a consultant rheumatologist and general physician at the Royal Free Hospital in London and we're going to be talking about rheumatoid arthritis. Welcome Tamir.
3: Thank you very much for inviting me to speak today, Pat. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, not at all. So let's start off with just finding out a little bit about you and your role.
3: So I'm a consultant rheumatologist and general physician at the Royal Free Hospital in Hampstead, London. And in fact, this is my first consultant post having commenced in October 2022. And in my current role at the Royal Free, I jointly run our lupus clinic. And I recently established a Rheumatology Hot Clinic, a rapid access clinic for patients with suspected new and acute rheumatological conditions designed to optimise the early recognition and prompt treatment of potentially damaging and organ-threatening diseases. I also organise and chair an engaging and lively weekly rheumatology postgraduate meeting. And in my spare time, I enjoy playing sport, keeping fit, travelling, and I've also had the privilege of working abroad, providing medical humanitarian support to refugees in the Middle East.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. So we're going to be talking about rheumatoid arthritis because that's the topic of your forthcoming presentation at MIMS Learning Live in London on 9th of June. So first of all, could we have a look at the scale of the problem of rheumatoid arthritis?
3: So when we talk about the scale of the problem, we can think about it in terms of the impact on the individual, but also the impact on our healthcare system and economy. So rheumatoid arthritis, a chronic systemic autoimmune inflammatory disorder, which primarily involves synovial joints, is the most common inflammatory arthritis and has a prevalence of 1% in the UK. And this is statistics that is reflected in worldwide prevalence data. And it's a disease that is up to four times more common in women than it is in men. In terms of incidence, the incidence is around 1.5 in men and 3.6 in women, developing rheumatoid arthritis per 10,000 people per year in the UK. And the peak age of onset is anywhere between 30 and 50 years old, and the peak age of incidence is in the eighth decade of life in both men and women. And if we look at the burden of this condition on the economy, almost universally, it causes physical and work-related disability at some point during the disease course. Broadly speaking, rheumatoid arthritis causes symptoms of pain, stiffness, joint swelling, and if not treated optimally, can lead to long-lasting joint damage, and unsurprisingly can lead to reduced quality of life, both in terms of physical and psychological fulfillment. And there are also extra-articular complications, namely cardiovascular disease with the accelerated rate of atherosclerosis. And that is indeed the leading cause of death for patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And rheumatoid arthritis itself is now an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease.
0: That's really interesting to hear more about the scale of the cost in terms of financial cost and cost to the people who are affected by this condition. Do we know a lot about the causes, about why it happens?
3: Well, the pathogenesis of rheumatoid arthritis uh, is complex. The precise cause remains uncertain, although it is widely accepted that there is an interplay between environmental and genetic influences, and they interact to trigger adaptive responses related to autoimmunity in fact, long before the onset of clinical symptoms. So the initial steps are likely to involve an environmental trigger of some sort, like cigarette smoking, inducing enzymes such as peptidyl arginine deaminases, and these modify peptides by converting arginine to citrulline, which is a process known as citrullination. And these proteins, in turn, are presented to T cells. And after being processed by antigen-presenting cells, such as dendritic cells can then go on to lead to an entity that we call pre RA or preclinical RA where anti protein antibodies or anti CCP and cytokines gradually increase in the circulation in the years before the symptoms occur and in that time anti CCP and rheumatoid factor can actually be detected sometimes more than a decade before the clinical onset of symptoms It is then thought that there is likely to be a second hit, such as the formation of immune complexes that increase the vascular permeability of the synovium and thereby activating synovial cells, in essence, inviting cytokines, chemokines, autoantibodies to subsequently contribute to the initiation and perpetuation of arthritis. And this can include the destruction of cartilage and osteoclast-driven damage to subchondral bone. Uh, and this outcome, this result, can actually be irreversible and occurs actually soon after the onset of rheumatoid arthritis, which is why early interventions can help improve long term outcomes.
0: So, what kind of outcomes are actually possible for the patients that you see?
3: Well, this is a really important question. And I should say that despite leaps and bounds made in treatment, Over the last two or so decades, there does remain a significant burden of disease and morbidity arising from rheumatoid arthritis. So, as I've already alluded to, the early initiation of effective and timely treatment to modify the disease and its progression will maximize the chances of improving long term outcomes. But most patients have a progressive disease that can either take the form of a slow or a rapid course. And there will be a significant proportion of patients who will experience intermittent periods of exacerbation or flares as we sometimes call them and it is this persistent synovial inflammation that is associated with joint destruction and can lead to significant and irreversible joint injury in fact what's interesting is that bone erosions appear early in the course of the disease sometimes within weeks of the diagnosis and in fact More than 10% of patients will develop bony erosions within eight weeks of the disease onset, and up to 60% of patients will develop erosions after one year. And so all patients diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis need to be treated with disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs as soon as possible, and this can be viewed as a window of opportunity for optimal treatment benefits. But outcomes in rheumatoid arthritis not only depend on the degree of joint damage but also the presence of comorbid illness. I've already alluded to cardiovascular disease but also respiratory and infectious diseases too. And there is known to be a reduced life expectancy in patients with severe rheumatoid arthritis not only because of the sequelae of the condition but also the drugs used in its treatments. We have made significant leaps and bounds since the widespread use of methotrexate in the 1980s and then the advent of biologic agents in the latter 1990s, we've seen significant improvements. And interestingly, the reduced need of joint surgery is an apt example. So the number of total hip and knee replacements in patients with rheumatoid arthritis has actually decreased whilst this has increased amongst those in the general population. And when we talk about outcomes, we think about a treat-to-target approach where we initiate aggressive early management of treatment and we use a disease activity score known as the DAS28 score and we'll introduce a, a disease modifying agent such as methotrexate in combination with something else like hydroxychloroquine or sulfasalazine with a tapering course of steroids and then biologic agents can be used to optimize or regain control of the disease where initial disease modifying treatment has failed to achieve or maintain remission where remission is defined as a DAS28 score of less than 2.6 so to round that off while there is no cure for rheumatoid arthritis, remission can certainly feel like a cure. The question is, how likely are patients to achieve remission and thereby a sense of cure? And this can exceed more than two-thirds of patients when aggressive treatment is started early. However, where there is a delay in treatment, say one or two years, remission rates can be as low as in one in ten patients. And so having low disease activity at the start of the condition is actually a predictor or a good prognosticator. So once I have a patient initiated on treatment and we've gained remission and we've maintained remission, the challenge really is, is there a role for disease? Is there a role for drug-free remission? And often that's where the challenge is. Because often after complete withdrawal of treatment, overt flares and sometimes even low-grade subclinical disease can occur. And that's where the challenge really lies.
0: Thank you for that. And As time goes on over the next couple of years, do you think that how you manage rheumatoid arthritis will alter? Will there be changes?
3: Yeah, another very interesting question. And as I've already mentioned, we've made some vast developments over the last few decades in the field of rheumatology, a deeper understanding of the microscopic and macroscopic changes of disease. The advent of biologic therapies have revolutionized the way that we treat rheumatoid arthritis. And now we possess a wide armamentarium of therapeutic options ranging from older drugs through to neurodrugs. In fact, the anti-TNF therapies represented a major paradigm shift at the time of treatment. And now, of course, with the expiry of certain patents, this has led to the emergence of biosimilars, which are opening up a realm of cost-effective approaches to treatment. And then we have the development of new biologic therapies. And over time, we've been successful in inhibiting interleukin-6 receptors. We use rituximab, which is an anti-CD20 drug. BATICEPT is an effective drug as well, and more recently, JAK inhibitors, tofacitinib, baracitinib, filgotinib, upadacitinib. And now with our license to use anti-TNFs and certain JAK inhibitors, such as filgotinib and upadacitinib for moderate disease activity, so that's where the dascore threshold has been lowered, to 3.2 to 5.1 where a patient would now be eligible for a biologic treatment where previously they wouldn't have been due to a prior stipulation of requiring a DAS28 score of greater than 5.1 this in answer to your question should support our treat-to-target approach and I anticipate over the next two years we'll see the impact of this lowered threshold of eligibility for aggressive treatment to translate into earlier and more effective disease Remission and thereby reducing the burden and sequelae of disease, and burden of, and sequelae of the disease. In terms of optimizing systems and pathways to help improve detection rates and treatment for patients, well, we have opportunities to innovate ways to do that from the referral process in primary care to secondary care, and then how quickly we see our patients in secondary care. And NICE recommends that patients are seen within three weeks when they are referred for a suspected early inflammatory arthritis. And they also recommend that referrals are made from primary care within three days of the review in primary care. The National Early Inflammatory Arthritis Audit report from 2021-22 showed that about 54% of patients were referred within three days from primary care, and 42% of patients were assessed by rheumatology service within that three-week target. So as we enter a post-COVID era with a growing elective backlog and challenges with meeting such targets due to demands and capacity issues. This will be a growing challenge, but these targets exist for a reason. Patients with early inflammatory arthritis will sustain long-lasting harm if treatment is delayed. So adopting new ways of working, say identifying and reviewing stable follow-ups in secondary care and using remote consultations is one of the approaches used by some rheumatology units to create capacity for new inflammatory arthritis reviews. And Pat, I know you asked about the next two years, but I think it's very relevant to think about what we have in store over the next 10, 20 years, and it's a very exciting time. Uh, We're seeing more and more national, international collaborations to guide disease management. We're also seeing advances in diagnostics and disease monitoring with potential biomarkers that will allow earlier diagnosis and treatment monitoring, and then the ever-improving high-resolution imaging techniques such as ultrasound that are able to detect minor or subclinical disease and of course we're moving into this era of personalized medicine and so work to identify potential biomarkers which will safely and reliably predict response to drugs may actually lead to a situation where we can tailor treatment and handpick treatment for patients based on their disease profile and this will be a very cost-effective manner And this is very much work in progress. But really, until then, there's probably an avenue for more head-to-head trials between biologics to better inform a management. And with the utilization of hundreds of thousands of data points that we have on platforms like patient records and blood tests and so on, the role of artificial intelligence and machine learning is also very exciting. And this may well also be able to enable detection of patterns to allow earlier diagnosis and predict treatment response.
0: So there's obviously a big task ahead in the sort of next 10 years, but it sounds really, really exciting are there patterns that you see that indicate this kind of learning needs amongst other clinicians out there?
3: The first thing I would say is that I would encourage any clinician or primary care provider or GP to refer anyone with suspected early inflammatory arthritis or inflammatory arthritis, really any disease course that has yet to be assessed or have treatment initiated in secondary care. That's very important. But to answer your question I would echo the statement in the Get It Right First Time report in 2021, the GERFT report. And there was a recommendation that care for patients with non inflammatory musculoskeletal conditions such as back pain, hypermobility, fibromyalgia, and even indeed conditions like gout and polymyalgia rheumatica and other soft tissue conditions to be managed in primary and community care settings and in turn bringing care closer to home for patients in line with the ambitions outlined in the NHS long-term plan and the impact of that may well be that it will reduce waiting times for conditions that need more urgent rheumatology assessment and secondary care and will ensure that patients get the right care in the right setting.
0: Perhaps more specifically are there some key learning points based on research and your clinical practice, that you'd like to pass on to GPs and other clinicians?
3: Beyond what I've covered already, I would say that there are two broad points that I would share with my primary care colleagues. One would be in relation to the clinical diagnosis and the other about the ongoing management of risk factors related to rheumatoid arthritis. And this is where we would really value the support and expertise of our colleagues in primary care. So, firstly. And most importantly, rheumatoid arthritis is a clinical diagnosis. so It's characterised by joint pain, swelling over several weeks associated with early morning joint stiffness, usually lasting more than 30 minutes, where an alternative diagnosis wouldn't better explain the symptoms. Although I would encourage appropriate investigative workup to support referrals into secondary care, including bloods and x-rays of the affected areas, this usually would be of the hands and wrists, It's important to note that about 20 to 25% of patients are seronegative, and what I mean by that is patients do not express rheumatoid factor or anti-CCP in their serum despite meeting clinical classification criteria for rheumatoid arthritis. And furthermore, inflammatory markers such as CRP or ESR are normal in about half of patients with early rheumatoid arthritis. So our reliance upon investigations should be very much determined by the clinical context. Take, for example, a patient in older age with a history of osteoarthritis who develops acute and rapid onset, a hand or wrist pain and swelling with a raised CRP, then a diagnosis of pseudogout, a form of crystal arthritis characterized by the deposition of calcium pyrophosphate crystals in the joint, is a far more likely diagnosis than a new diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. The second point I wanted to touch upon was the management of cardiovascular risk factors. So rheumatoid arthritis is associated with a two-fold increase in the risk of developing cardiovascular disease compared to the general population, and in turn, a two-fold increase in subsequently going on to develop heart failure. And there appears to be a relationship between inflammation immune modulation treatment, and cardiovascular risk in rheumatoid arthritis, although disentangling all of this is challenging. So there's likely to be an interplay between inflammation, the innate and adaptive immune responses, and then cellular stress, namely oxidative stress, tissue hypoxia, endothelial damage, and so on. So what we do see with treatment of rheumatoid arthritis with methotrexate and anti-TNF inhibitors, for example, is a reduction in cardiovascular risk. And of course, in contrast, glucocorticoids actually increase cardiovascular risk. So as rheumatologists, we can leverage our expertise to reduce the impact of rheumatoid arthritis on cardiovascular morbidity, but we don't always have the resource during our clinics to optimise other risk factors, traditional risk factors such as smoking, hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol, obesity, and so on. And this is where we rely on our experts in primary care. And I think this represents an important opportunity to bolster the interface between primary and secondary care and to put patients front and centre in order to optimise their general health and well-being.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. I wondered if perhaps could you talk about someone, a patient or another clinician, who's been an inspiration to you?
3: This is a really difficult question, but if I were to have to pick someone, it would actually be a nurse that I worked with during my time providing medical humanitarian support in the Middle East, in Jordan, Sister Sabrine, we used to call her. And her story is really quite remarkable. So she was born and raised in the refugee camp and she grew up with nothing. She got married at the age of 16 and had her first of three children by the age of 17. And then she spent the best part of a decade raising her three girls, one of whom, the middle child, is registered blind, before her husband then became critically unwell with a heart attack. He survived, but not without lasting consequence. She dedicated the next three years fighting tooth and nail to ensure that he received all the necessary medical care to help him improve. And of course, you can appreciate that was a significant challenge for her, but she found reward and passion within this hardship. And so what she did is she decided to go back and sit her Taujihi, which is the equivalent to A-level exams in Jordan. And she did that at the age of 30. And then she went on to study nursing at university and remarkably achieved a distinction. And so now she works in the clinics at these refugee camps with really experienced physicians and surgeons, providing invaluable input towards patient care. And Sister Sabrine was not only a wonderful role model to people like me and the other clinicians and staff at the refugee camps, but she's also a role model to her children, who were also born in the very same refugee camp that she was, with her eldest child about to enter her Tauzhihi year, A-level year and is on course for a really good grade and will hopefully secure a place in medical school. And if you thought that Sister Sabrine couldn't be more of an inspiration, then uh, we have to think again, because in her spare time, she spends countless hours producing voice recordings of every page from every textbook belonging to her middle child, the one registered blind, to minimize the impact of her disability on her progress and opportunities in life. So when she told me this, in the middle of one of our clinics, actually, I was utterly speechless.
0: That's truly an inspirational story. That is quite amazing. So thank you for sharing that. Really appreciate that. Thank you. So, well, we're looking forward to seeing you at MIMS Learning Live on ninth of June in London. Is there anything you're particularly looking forward to about talking to GPs on the topic of rheumatoid arthritis?
3: I think the main thing is to harness and bolster that interface between primary and secondary care. I think if we can get it right on both ends of the spectrum, then we can really ensure that the patient is central to the care that we provide. And I think that ultimately we play a really big part in improving long-term outcomes for patients. And if we can get it right, then we'll have a significant impact for patients, not only on an individual level, but at a population level. So I'm very excited to meet colleagues and be able to speak and have dialogues and interact with all of them at the MIMS event later this year.
0: Thank you. It's the first time actually that we've run a rheumatology half day as part of this event and it was suggested by our GP advisor that there are lots of learning needs around rheumatology and autoimmune disease. So that's why we've ended up with rheumatology in the program which we haven't had in previous years. So I'm really looking forward to that. It should be great. And the event will feature lots of learning about a variety of clinical topics. So we hope to see you there. So thank you very much, Tamiya, for taking part.
3: You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me on to speak to you.
0: Oh, It was an absolute pleasure. And thanks very much for sparing the time.
3: Absolutely. Thank you. Take care.
0: In our final section, we're going to discuss a learning nugget drawn from one of our regular monthly research briefings covering a range of clinical specialties. This time I'd like to talk about the study highlighted in our primary care research briefing. This piece of research might leave a sour taste in your mouth, unfortunately, as it shows that artificial sweeteners are definitely bad news. It was a large population-based prospective cohort study conducted in France among just over a hundred thousand people over 12 years. These people recorded their dietary intake of artificial sweeteners from all sources including drinks, tabletop sweeteners and dairy products and the type of sweeteners consumed. And they found that total artificial sweetener intake was associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and was more particularly associated with cerebrovascular disease risk. So the researchers say this suggests a potential direct association between higher artificial sweetener consumption and increased cardiovascular disease risk. So I thought it was interesting that our GP advisor, Dr. Ravi Ramanathan, in commenting on this research briefing, said patients do commonly ask about the safety of artificial sweeteners. He says the study results can be used for opportunistic health promotion to advise patients to minimise or stop these products completely. But I've ended up feeling a bit sorry for healthcare professionals. They need to advise patients not to eat too much sugar, and now it seems they can't suggest using artificial sweeteners as an alternative.
1: Yeah, I kind of think these findings show that there's no such thing as an easy win. Based on these studies, a healthcare professional can't, for example, just advise their patients to swap out their sugary drinks for the dark version instead.
0: No, that's true. Although I guess at least you are informing your patient that a drink or snack containing its sweetness is not a risk-free option, and therefore you're giving them the chance to make an informed choice.
1: I think the problem, though, is what do healthcare professionals advise patients to do instead? The obvious answer is, well, drink water rather than fizzy pop. But I think that's easier said than done for many of us.
2: Yes, I agree. Even though it seems simple on the surface, I think it can pose challenges for a lot of people, especially those who don't have the resources. I do wonder which is the lesser of the two evils, though. Is it sugar or artificial sweetness? Because high amounts of artificial sweeteners may be associated with some risks, but how does that stack up against comparable amounts of sugar, I wonder? That's a good question. I think there is
0: conclusive evidence that eating too much sugar causes obesity and tooth decay. However, there's also apparently some evidence that eating sweeteners can stimulate your appetite and therefore contribute to obesity as well. So it's up to individuals to decide, but the British Heart Foundation sensibly recommends to reduce the total sweetness of
2: your diet to readjust your tastes in the long term. That's a good recommendation. I took a peek at the study you discussed and I saw that the researchers found that the cardiovascular disease risk was particularly with consumption of aspartame, acesulfame, potassium and sucralose. So it makes me wonder if sweeteners that are considered natural And I'm thinking of stevia or steviol glycoside. Would they confer the same risk? They did have people consuming steviol glycosides in their study, but the percentage was pretty small. So they were all grouped under others in the study.
0: That's an interesting point and one that will hopefully be covered in further research, just in case it provides a better option for those who are trying to cut out sugar. So thanks very much, Sangeeta and Dawn, for your bite-sized discussion of this topic. And thanks very much for listening to this podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight's time, and you'll find links to the learning materials we've talked about in the podcast description.